Today's episode of the Shameless Picture Show is sponsored by Vinegar Syndrome. Check them out online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. Vinegar Syndrome is one of the most interesting DVD and Blu-ray labels around because of their extensive catalog of horror, cult, exploitation, and vintage sexploitation films. Unlike most companies, Vinegar Syndrome is also a restoration company with their own in-house lab where they've done new restorations for companies such as Arrow, Massacre Video, and Draft House Films. Check out Vinegar Syndrome today and grab your copy of Dolomite, Sugar Cookies, Jack Frost, or even Psycho Cop Returns. While I'm a little more knowledgeable about the label than my co-host, I can assure you that I love their stuff. Whenever I'm at a convention, their table is one of the first I hit, and much to my wife's chagrin, I spend way too much time going over every single title. I own quite a few. So, once again, head over to www.vinegarsyndrome.com and grab yourself something cool. Seriously, my money is on Christmas Evil. Go buy it. It's John Waters' favorite Christmas movie. And therefore, it should be yours. He does a commentary on it. It's it's kind of great. He does a commentary with the director, which it's even better because he has a completely different like opinion of what the movie's about than the director, which makes it even better. Vinegar Syndrome. Check them out online at www.vinegarsyndrome.com. That's for fucking with me, you no-business-born, insecure motherfucker! Welcome to the 13th episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I'm Michael Vars, and with me is the embodiment of Rhett Butler. <laughs> Nick Richards. Fiddle DD. Uh, <laughs> on today's special Mother's Day episode, we'll be discussing David O. Selznick's production of Gone with the Wind. Adapted from the best-selling novel by Margaret Mitchell, this large-scale epic film tells the 12-year story of young Scarlett O'Hara and her journey from naive adolescent before the Civil War to independent matriarch as she pulls herself up from the rubble of her ruined life after the Civil War. Along for the journey every step of the way is suave, handsome Rhett Butler. He's mysterious and charming, she's manipulative and beautiful, and their love is turbulent. Gone with the Wind is now considered to be one of the greatest and most important films of all time, and while the production was challenging, it'll always be remembered as the pinnacle for Hollywood at the time. The film stars Vivian Lee, Clark Gable, Thomas Mitchell, and Hetty McDaniel, and was directed by a slew of names, Victor Fleming being the most prominent. Gone with the Wind has captured the imagination and acclaim of the entire world. The screen has never known a love story to compare with this, when Rhett Butler meets Scarlett O'Hara. I love you more than I've ever loved any woman. And I've waited longer for you than I've ever waited for any woman. Scarlett, kiss me. Kiss me once. Can you honestly say you don't love me? I don't love you. It's a lie. Well, even if it is a lie, do you think I'd go off and leave Melanie and the baby? A love affair you'll remember as long as you live. Filled with all the fire and fury of the times in which it happened. 
can't understand anything else. And you're jealous of something you can't understand. It's not that easy, Scarlett. You turned me out while you chased Ashley Wilkes, while you dreamed of Ashley Wilkes. This is one night you're not turning me out. Gone with the wind. First picture to win 10 Academy Awards. The most honored, the most talked about motion picture in all film history. <laughs> yeah, that it took me a while to get that just right. <laughs> it's you're, you're boiling a lot down. See, I would have went with something a little more succinct, which would have gone straight to the spirit of I think what the film is is a uh, uh, Scarlett O'Hara um, uh, abuses a horse to death, and then all of horse kind comes back to kill everyone that she loves. It's really an animal-based <laughs> slasher film. Well, I had never quite saw it that way. <laughs> uh, speaking of that scene, when I was watching this with Amanda, like she, I think she had just gotten back to Terra, uh, and uh, she like whips the horse one more time, and it just <laughs> fucking collapses. And she goes, "She killed the horse. <laughs> the horse died." And I was like, "No, no, baby, it's just sleeping. <laughs> it's, it's going off to a farm to live somewhere. Doesn't that sound nice? Yeah, doesn't that sound nice?" And then uh, horses kill everyone that she loves. <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's really just the allegory for the Civil War right there. <laughs> it's really horses. It's it's the South versus horses. <laughs> oh. So, neither of us have seen Gone with the Wind, right? Like, is this a, this is a first for both of I us? I have. Oh, I you've have. It's, seen Gone with the it's, Wind. It has been a while, and I certainly... <clears throat> um, I was probably in my early 20s when I first saw it and did not have the perspective that I have on it now. No, I get that. So I, I, I still garnered a great deal from no, it. No, I get that. And, like, um, I feel like I saw bits and pieces of this movie growing up, and then I always heard my mother speaking about it, which whom this episode is uh, dedicated to. Um, but I never wanted to watch it, and it's honestly because... I was convinced because the little parts I did see that it was just going to be a big chamber piece movie yeah. with people in fine dresses sitting around talking about <laughs> romance and and uh, it is not that <laughs> no it starts off that way and uh, like the first like fifteen minutes I was like oh, <laughs> this movie uh, but it grew on me and I've got conflicting opinions about the movie. Um, I think I described it to a friend of mine recently. Actually, my former host of the No Homers podcast, Nico, I was talking to him about it because he had just recently watched it for the first time. And I said to him, my my feelings about it were that it was a very good, if not great at times, movie that uh, had more scope and more heart than any other film at the time, while some of the content was questionable. Um, and it's a very bold choice for 1939 to have a, in my opinion, very unlikable lead character. 
but with motivation there, why you saw that she, why she was so unlikable there aren't a whole lot of likable characters in the film no not really like um i honestly like like clark gable is probably the most likable and even and he's he was pretty, an ass yeah he was an ass until like the third act and uh i i hate to we we always tend to do a very tangenty approach to these film analyses and this one is so <laughs> dense that that might be problematic but what you just said reminded me of a thought that i had last night by the way oh for those who haven't seen it uh this movie is four hours long <laughs> yeah it is it is oh, that's not it is very long uh uh Actually, no. That is including a um, an uh, an overture, uh, exit music, a yeah. a uh, an intermission, and a uh, end of intermission. There's actually music <laughs> to signal that the intermission is over. Uh, so I I watched it last night, finishing it at two a.m. this morning. <laughs> Woo! Um, but anyway, we were talking about uh, Rhett. I, I find it, there, there's this point where Scarlet, like, falls in love with Rhett, stops yeah. using him for his money uh, and security, and, and actually falls in love with him. And it seems to be, like, the night of drunken abuse that ended, presumably, in sex, and not necessarily, like, totally consensual. Good night. Jealous, am I? Yes, I suppose I am. Even though I know you've been faithful to me all along. How do I know? Because I know Ashley Wilkes and his honorable breed. They're gentlemen. That's more than I can say for you or for me. We're not gentlemen. And we have no honor, have we? Not that easy, Scarlet. You turned me out while you chased Ashley Wilkes, while you dreamed of Ashley Wilkes. This is one night you're not turning me out. Yeah. Like, that, that speaks to what you were saying about the questionable content, like... There, there is no point where you feel good about the actions of any of these characters in the film. It may be scattered. Every once in a while you're like, oh, wait, maybe there's hope that they're not going to totally ruin their lives. Make a good decision. What was totally weird about that scene, though, for me at least, was that um, the next morning she seemed really like... She was so happy. Yeah. To whistle in. Mammy comes in and she's, oh, what are you so happy about? Well, my husband abused me and now I'm in love. <laughs> and then, like, e- even, like, when she, like, it was the moment, like, where, you know, yeah, this is going to jump all over the place. And if you <laughs> haven't watched this movie, don't listen to this episode because we're going to give everything away. You know, the uh, the very last scene that we that we see Rhett uh and uh, you know Ashley had just broken it off with her. Pretty much told her like this is never happening, Scarlet. And she's like, oh, I guess I do love Rhett. <laughs> and it's like that's what like, that's what it finally took for you to realize you've had a you've you know 
questionable times, but you've had a realistically good man who was going to take care of you. Even like when he when he talked about divorcing her, he was going to take care of her. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know that I'd describe him as a good man. Well, maybe not a good man, he, but he he was going to take care of her because he loved her. But there was a lot of uh, that that was a loaded uh, a loaded relationship yeah. on both sides. He was like, a questionable man. Good father, it seemed like. Like, uh, yeah, it, he, I, he definitely I think, cared more about their child than she did. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, for I think for Scarlet, for for Rhett, and he he flat out says this. Um, their daughter was for him, uh, Scarlet in child form, innocent. And and something that he could channel all of his affection and love into because he couldn't channel it into Scarlet. For Scarlet, I think their daughter was a reminder that once again she has married somebody that she has no real feelings for. Um, mm-hmm. And that she has serious issues with. You know, some of the other ones at, at least they were gentle. And there wasn't the same kind of emotional uh, uh, abuse that she had with Rhett. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, there is, had she not been cruelly murdered by a horse seeking revenge, um, that, that kid was going to have a lot of therapy. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, like, you, you talk about her, her first two husbands who were gentle, like, the first one, he was so gentle that he when he died in war, he didn't even die from getting shot. He died from two illnesses. <laughs> they they and they made a point in that letter to say, you know, eh, not an honorable war death. He died of pneumonia, I think, and measles. <laughs> and measles. <laughs> and then, like her second husband, while she, uh, he wasn't emo- uh, emotionally abusing him, she was kind of emotionally. Uh, uh, he wasn't emotionally emotionally abusing her. He was. She was kind of emotionally abusing him. Oh, and absolutely. He completely died because of her. Yep. Um. This is a, think, this is a deep and dark fucking movie. Oh yeah, I think kind of by the end of it, I was I summarized my take on the film as. The, the major players here, particularly Scarlet and Rhett, um, are trying to own things and in particular people. They, I think there's a reason why they never develop why Scarlet loves, air quote around loves, Ashley the way that she does. Yeah. It's, it's enough that her actions over the course of this four-hour film up until the last 10 minutes everything she does she does it so she can have ashley yeah but why why did there's not this this setup in the beginning that establishes oh he's so amazing that's why i love him or why do i have these feelings she just decided i love him probably because she couldn't have him yeah she could have any man except that one they make reference to the fact that like in that little chamber scene uh, uh, in uh, the library with Ashley and Scarlett at the beginning, that they might have had something 
a couple years prior, if not shortly before Ashley got together with Melanie. But no, yeah, realistic- they were courting. <laughs> realistically, it just seemed like he wasn't available and was the only guy who, in his own way, wasn't swooning over her. Uh, right. Like, the way that the other guys were. Like, we find out through the course of it that, like, he's definitely have... He... he, he it's actually the hardest one to read because I can't figure out his intentions, but like at least to the extent of, you know, he might have interest in Scarlet, but not in the way that everyone else does where like anyone else Scarlet says hi and they immediately walk away from their women and just to yeah. like, yeah, I'll eat barbecue with you, Ms. O'Hara. <laughs> well, um, Ashley is driven by honor and practicality. Those are his two defining features and a lot of this the one of the big themes in the film is like honor versus heart or emotion mm-hmm. can you honestly say you don't love me no i i don't love you it's a lie well even if it is a lie do you think i'd go off and leave melanie and the baby break melanie's heart scarlet you mad you couldn't leave your father and the girl i couldn't leave them i'm sick of them i'm tired of them yes you're sick and tired that's why you're talking this way you've carried the load for all of us but from now on, I'm going to be more help to you, I promise. There's only one way you can help me. Take me away. There's nothing to keep us here. Nothing. Nothing except honor. Uh, Ashley's practicality is what uh, brings him to his wife. Uh, and he says something to the effect of uh, Ashley and Scarlett. Uh, that they were too different, and that's why they wouldn't work. So he needed to marry someone like him in order for that to work, which then sheds an interesting light on her and Rhett because they are so similar, but they still don't work. So if Mm -hmm. Scarlett can't be in a relationship that works because she'd be too different than the person, but she also can't have a successful relationship because she's too the same as that person, what what is there for Scarlet? That's and I think that's what the core of this movie, what it's really about. I read um. Uh, I've been reading up a little bit about like the history of Gone with the Wind, the novel, uh, the the production, and just theories about it. And um, this is uh, one of the common themes that I hear is that um, Gone with the Wind was the perfect film for the type of film they were trying to make in 1939 where it has more in line with the with the depression era flapper than it does with the southern bell because characters like scarlett o'hara did not exist in the 1800s it is more of a reflection of margaret mitchell the author and the type of life she was living than it did of anything else and um you know i think the idea of like sexual freedom is kind of like one of the big themes of this book where like Scarlet doesn't have a person doesn't have a man that love that she loves the way that they love her or vice versa but that's never once stopped her like the fact that the final frame of the movie is her pretty much tra- pulling herself back up and you know saying it in 1939 vernacular that nothing's gonna fucking stop me I'm going to keep moving on and even after she married Rhett the fact that she wanted to keep her business because 
it was what something she was proud of, I think speaks a lot for the type of person that she is. Yeah. And there's, you know, that's also a reaction to the end of the first half of the film when she claims proudly that... God is my witness. I'll never be hungry again. everything in the second act is or not act the the first half of the film and the second half of the film mirror each other in in very i'm sure intentional but eerie ways in that uh one of the main differences being in the first half of the film she was doing everything in order to get ashley yep. in the second half of the film all of her motivation was uh being secure, having money, not letting the the Yankees take her. Uh, I, I don't even know if independence is the right word, but her security. It's self-preservation. Yeah. She realized that no man or, or person in general, like even her daughter, could make her happy the way that Tara made her happy. Yeah. And she manipulates people in the same way in both halves in order to reach that goal that is different. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I had started mentioning before kind of my, my summary, and we tangent it off. Um, so the both Rhett and Scarlet, um, they, they, they covet people. They want to own people. Uh, in, in Scarlet's case, it's Ashley. Yeah. Uh, and and Tara, but that's obviously a uh, land. However, it's land with a title, with a name, so it's personified. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rhett seeks to own Scarlet. They both, in a way, get what they want. Uh, when Scarlet owns the business, Ashley is her business partner. She mm-hmm. always finds a way to keep Ashley in her life and, and have a modicum of of control over his life or, or some kind of heavy connection to it. Um, so they, they own it. Rhett owns Scarlet. He owns his daughter. He even says when, when their daughter is born, this is the first person that I've ever truly owned. Yeah. I um, caught that line and uh, I, I kind of just played it off as being like maybe a product of the time, but it's like, I don't, I don't sit well with that line. I, yeah. I think that's, that's a reflection of their commentary on uh, uh, this Southern lifestyle and its connection to slavery and owning people. Yeah. Um, they paint the, the Southern Bell plantation lifestyle in a really interesting way where on the surface it's, oh, look at how great these poor, these poor Southerners on their plantations and these this mean the the Yankees are only seen as Sherman. Yeah. That, that's the only part of the northern part uh northern forces that you see. Well or is talked about. You well, other than the uh the 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 robber later on in the film. Oh yeah, sure. But it yeah, it, it's certainly taking the worst bits of that and saying 
all we're trying to do is live our nice, peaceful, plantation, elegant lifestyles, and the northerners are just trying to torture us, um, which it, is not the narrative that we get in in our generation. And I'm sure it was true then too. It's it's interesting though, like um, because they very much painted in the light of what they they kind of uh, ignore. Ignore maybe ignores the wrong word, but they don't touch on the fact that the reason the, the Civil War was fought was over slavery. They yeah. they 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 play it more as um, you know, we just don't want our way of life to to be changed. Uh, and and we all know that that old quote, um, "History is written by the winners." Right. Uh, you know, so we always it's 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 interesting in a way because usually when we see a Civil War movie, the Southerners are always the one treated as like the evil villain. So it's right. kind of interesting to see a Southerners because uh, Margaret Mitchell is Southern, who was raised on stories of the Civil War. It's kind of interesting to see like her perspective on it. However, like I I do love that like um. Uh, the 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 bias the southern bias like there's that great scene where like the camera is moving past and showing all the dead bodies as it pulls out and you see the Confederate flag and yep. apparently someone made a comment back in the movie came out that said uh, had we had that many soldiers during that actual war we might have won. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's interesting because like you know beginning of the film they're all like you don't want to go to war Scarlet and just like this, right. they're, all, they're all so like gung ho to go to war and then like war happens and they're like we're not ready we don't know what we're doing <laughs> and I just love that they kind of get their comeuppance and like uh, they're slapped on the wrist and uh, like they're like well shit we got ourselves into this right um, but you know while you have the author, the Southern author, author's take on all of this, um, she also, through Rhett and Starlet, have, has the subtext commentary on um, kind of the, the foibles of trying to control and have power over people when they're not as invested in the relationship as you are. Yeah. When you're trying to get somebody else to do something for you uh, because you want it, not because you collectively want it as a group. So I, I think there is some, it's not as pro-South as it seems on the surface. Yeah, and... Um I'm kind of touching back on like questionable content because we can't talk this episode without eventually talking about the uh, the big elephant in the room when it comes to this movie and racism. And right. it's it's interesting because I did some reading and apparently this is the film that eventually began changing the way that African Americans were portrayed in films. Not completely because they still had a lot of they still had a long road ahead of them, but some decisions were made like David O. Selznick, which. Uh, at the top of the episode, I said it was David Oselznick's production of Gone with the Wind. Not taking credit away from the director, but he was the only force throughout the entire process of this film that stayed on. This film went through uh, five different directors or so <laughs> because of exhaustion or being fired or various things. And David Oselznick was Scarlet the... whipped him one more time and he yeah. collapsed, foaming at the mouth. Yeah, and like he... did she just kill the director? <laughs> He's the only one that stayed on, like so much so since they went through. They were rewriting the script daily. There was no actual account of how the script actually was, and uh, so in the editing room, they're like, "We don't know what the fuck to do." 
we don't have a script <laughs> to go off of. So Selznick's the only one that knew the story from beginning to end. So he was in the editing room assembling everything. So David he was Sel- the script. <laughs> yeah, he was the uh, the you know he was the creative force behind this film, and. Um, when they were casting a large amount of the uh, the black actors in this film, a lot of them felt very uncomfortable with the content, understandably. Like, especially yeah. uh, Butterfly McQueen, who played, uh, I think it was Missy. She played, like, the more simpleton oh, yeah. girl yep. who don't know nothing about birth and no babies. Uh, she, uh, she felt very uncomfortable with the type of role that she was playing. And David O. Selznick heard this, uh, you know, and to his own ability in 1939, did what he could to change some con- some things. Like, he removed any use of the N-word from the script. Okay. Uh, they, they have other uh, equally as bad uh, slurs, but it's a start, I guess. Uh, and he also removed any reference and any scenes that involve the clan. Okay. Because he was trying to make their time on set a little, like, make them feel like they were characters, uh, even though they were uh, very harsh stereotypes. So sure. it's interesting. But, like, a couple years ago, maybe last year, um, I think it's New York critic Lou Luminick believed he feels the film should be banned from any theatrical uh, showings ever again and should, if anything it should only ever be seen in a museum because he feels it's that out of date which I, mm. I want your opinion on because I, I, I'm on a, I'm on a weird um, uh, mindset where I get where he's coming from it is out of date with its morals but at the same time I don't believe in banning in banning films banning books I don't I don't right. believe in that because I feel like everything good or bad is a time capsule well and I I I certainly can't speak to the intentions of the author or the filmmakers. Um, I don't know what that was. But what I got out of the film, um, particularly this viewing, um, was the the death of that lifestyle. The the death of that, or or at least the beginning of the end. That. Um, that Starlet's story paralleled um, the story of plantation life coming to an end. <clears throat> and in that context, I think, you know, that, that's not necessarily a story to ban. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly think that the way that it was colored, again, as, as we spoke about earlier, um, oh colored plantation life as harmless Mm -hmm. you know you you there's a couple of shots in the beginning of them working in the fields um but then you get the scene right after the the intermission where scarlet and her sisters are picking cotton cotton in order to keep tara alive um no, I, I don't think it should be banned, and I, I agree with you that I don't think I don't think banning art accomplishes anything. No, I, I think uh, about oh continue. If if it's a problematic piece of art, it should be kept available but given uh historical context to say, Yep, this is a sign of the times and it's problematic for this and this reason. And here's what we can learn from it. It, you know, if 
if you truly believe that a piece of art is um, is insulting, problematic, out of touch, um, don't destroy it. Don't hide it. Um, say, okay, this this is a thing that a lot of people are aware of. Let's talk about it. Discuss why it's a problem, so we can change the you know the future. No, exactly. It's like um, you know, there's a lot of uh, reference, not references, but like. It- it's hard to talk about Gone with the Wind without mentioning Birth of a Nation, uh, D.W. Griffith's controversial film. Um, and there is, it, it, it's, while Gone with the Wind, I feel, is a lot more subtly racist, uh, <laughs> uh, Birth of a Nation is a lot more blatantly racist, extremely much so. Um, but that being said, D.W. Griffith did, uh, while making Birth of Nation, did uh, more for filmmaking than any other filmmaker had done at that point. It's the reason why, like, in film school, we still talk about the film, um, even, but they do give that historical context and pretty much say, you know, like, this is not how any of us feel. Like, um, and I feel like that's how films like this should be treated. Like, I, I, I read an article a year or two ago where someone was trying to say that 16 candles should also should also be banned because of questionable content and i rewatched it and the movie is kind of rapey <laughs> and it's homophobic at times but i was talking to amanda about this and it's it's well i can't necessarily speak for the voices of these uh, of the minorities because i don't know what it's like or how what how how these things feel it's a t- like once i said earlier it's a time capsule um, and if we if we were to, if we were to you, you don't have to like this movie you don't have to respect this movie you don't have to give this movie any you know any two thoughts but to ban it would would almost give it more power because you are giving in to the people you know incorrect thought instead of saying like no we're not going to ban this film but instead we're going to tell you why this movie is incorrect right yeah and it, as you said and i was about to get give the same disclaimer like that it's really easy for me as like a straight white dude to talk about like what should and shouldn't be done with these pieces of art but when it comes down to it like i'm not the person who should be making that decision i i have like a broad idea of of just art banning in general yeah but um i'm not the person to to ask when it comes to should racist films be you know what what should become of those i don't want to make that decision no. that doesn't affect me like it does other people no and it's it's it, the, I, I guess i kind of view it as such like if you ban anything that's questionable one you're clo- you're closing yourself off to art because art is supposed to challenge in some way <laughs> not yeah. shouldn't it shouldn't necessarily like hurt a person but you know there should be some sort of challenging aspect to it and by banning something, you're closing yourself off to a completely different mindset. Not saying you have to agree with that mindset, but it's like it's the same way of like in today's political climate, there's a lot of people I don't agree with on my Facebook. <laughs> and if I were to ban every single if I were to block every single one of them and just live inside my little bubble, I'm cutting myself off from different opinions. Even if I don't agree with ninety percent of those other opinions, at least then I can I can see it. Well, and and you can understand, if you take the time to understand the source of those ideas that you don't agree with, you can better argue your case or or better better define your side. 
I, I find that hearing somebody that agrees with me does really nothing to educate myself. When I hear somebody really smart who, who has a really dissenting opinion, like nothing clarifies my position more than that because then I'm like, all right, well, why it challenges me. Why do I think what I think? Mm-hmm. If, does any of that change? And if it doesn't change, then it allows me to steal myself in that and, and figure out when I'm presented with this other, uh, you know, perspective, why do I think the way that I do? Why do I disagree with you? What information, what education do I need to get in order to figure out my perspective better? Yeah. Well, damn, um, that was dense. <laughs> yeah. And and so now we should start talking about the film. <laughs> yeah. Um, my next two uh, uh, my next two notes are kind of amusing because uh, uh, one of them is uh, Scarlet is a twit. <laughs> and then right after that, Rhett Butler, am I right? <laughs> I don't even know what I meant like when I when I wrote that, and I'm trying to decipher what, what the fuck I was I was. What's the deal with Rhett Butler? <laughs> um, see, the, the thing the thing that's difficult about Rhett Butler is like you're saying he's not a very he's not a good person. No, terrible. But, so, but he he's so it, fucking he charming. knows who he is. Yeah, and and he's he's not. Man, Manipulative. Scarlet's very manipulative. Rhett will come out and say, I'm a terrible person. Yeah, or I'm a self-interested person. I don't do anything for honor. I do everything for me. Yeah, like, every, like he spends most of his time at a whorehouse, and, like, you know, he's a blockade runner for hire. So, like, anyone, who, any side that pays him more, he'll go and help. Right. Uh, but the fact that he's so very honest about his dishonesty, like, almost, like... In An honor amongst thieves. In a strange way, kind of gives him a pass. It's kind of like I call uh, I, I always I've been referring to it as the Captain Jack Sparrow um, mentality. <laughs> Captain Jack Sparrow is a fucking criminal, a crook, <laughs> a terrible person. Uh, uh, but yet everyone loves him because yep. he's open about the fact that he's a terrible person. Pirates. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Clark Gable is a charming man. Yep. My uncle, uh, who actually, I guess preface in saying it, is gay, he had a lar- the hugest crush on Clark Gable. <laughs> like, whenever we were watching Turner Classic Movies, he would put a Clark Gable movie on. And now yes. thinking back about it, like, his, his the way that my, my uncle styled his mustache and everything just seemed very Clark Gable-ish, <laughs> now that I'm thinking yeah. about it. He has too many teeth for my taste. He smiles, and it's like, how, does, how do you fit all those teeth in there? <laughs> Uh, from what I heard, uh, they did a lot of work on him, so I wouldn't be surprised if they'd put extra <laughs> teeth in him. Like, when he came to Hollywood, he was scrawny, had no facial hair, had a high-pitched voice. We have the technology. Uh, that's actually, that, that's actually one of the more interesting scandals of this film. Have you heard about any of the scandals behind this film? No. Well, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of director changes. Victor Fleming is the one who actually gets the credits, Hold on, I'm scrolling down so I can see names. Uh, da, 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 da. My computer's being kind of slow, so give me a second. Victor yeah. Fleming is the one that gets the credit. Uh, but jo- uh, a filmmaker by the name of George Cukor is the one that started on the film. And uh, they shot, I think, someone said that like there, there might be 
four solid reels left of his work in the actual film, which for a film this big is not that much. Right. Um, but he was he directed a lot of these chamber pieces, as I keep calling them. It's you know a bunch of people sitting around talking. He was uh, the the women on set loved him. He was had a great feel for that women talking, and uh, but he was taking so long. He was a good friend of David O. Selznick, but things were just taking too long, and they weren't agreeing on a lot, and they're behind schedule. Uh, but Clark Gable was good friends with Victor Fleming. They, you know, he'd worked on a lot of westerns and war pictures, so they thought, let's bring him on. Maybe he'll have a, a different take on a lot of this, much to the chagrin of a lot of the female cast, because they felt protected <laughs> and safe under Kukor. But that's what the documentaries had to say. Right. Uh, if you look at kind of like, and that documentary was made in 1988, so it's like it hadn't like revealed a lot of the seedy underbelly of things. The reason I also heard that George Cukor was fired, it, George Cukor was gay, and it okay. was pretty well documented that he was gay. Uh, and I cannot remember the name of uh, another filmmaker in Hollywood who is gay, but they're good friends, and they come to, they come <laughs> on set. Not good friends in that way, like they just they 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 rolled in the same circles. Um, how do I put this nicely? Clark Gable also knew these two men, and uh, Clark Gable wasn't completely straight from what I from what I've read from the okay. beginning of his career. He he was a womanizer in the worst possible way and a terrible drunk. He when he first came to Hollywood, he he he'd shack up with wealthy older women for their money. Uh, and then keep sleeping around, and uh, but he would essentially fool around with anyone, and he had a relationship for a while with this other filmmaker, this guy, and uh, he helped Clark Gable create his new aesthetic. You know, help him with his facial hair, helped him create a new <laughs> voice, and become a a better actor and a more yeah. formable presence, and. Um, Apparently, the the way that the rumors go, that Cukor was talking to this other filmmaker, which I wish I could find the name of, um, <laughs> and uh, someone had joked around that, oh, Cukor uh, hired one of your uh, uh, one of your former tricks. <laughs> Gable heard this, was furious, and talked to David Oselznik because Gable didn't want to do this film originally, and said it's either him or me. Okay. So they got rid of Cukor. Hmm. So uh, that's that's the seedier version of that story. Drama. Um, because, you know, he didn't want anyone to know about him playing for both teams. <laughs> it's a different time. Mm-hmm. So there's that. That's like one of the, the more infamous stories about this movie. And I was talking to my mom about this movie because this is one of her favorites. And, uh, um, and I was telling her, it's, and she was like, oh, Q Car was, was, was fired because he wasn't a manly enough director. And I'm smirking to myself. It's like, that's not the only reason. And she's yeah. like, what do you mean? It's like, Q Car and Clark Gable recognize each other from the same clubs. <laughs> and she's like, what kind of clubs? It's like, Q Car was gay. It's like, Clark Gable wasn't gay, was he? And she got really offended. It's like, no, 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 no. Uh, and I told but, her a different version of the story. And, and but that reaction kind of demonstrates and, and this was even earlier you know but but that the requirement that these 
leading men needed to portray mm-hmm. that generation's idea of manliness and masculinity that no especially because like gay clubs were illegal at the time in hollywood yeah. if you were caught in one you could we'd be arrested so like it's not yeah. surprising to have to keep it secret but like i also don't think that clark gable was necessarily completely gay like he, he had a lot of famous relationships with other women so i just i always just kind of imagine he just you know whoever he was attracted to that day right but uh yeah that uh, like said so th- this film went through a lot of like i, I touched on it a little bit there's a lot of issues with this film you know, because originally it was David O'Sells and they're trying to get this movie made with a script by Sidney Howard, which the script, if made, would have been five hours long. And he's like, no, <laughs> wait, that is way too long. And like, let's, let's trim it back an hour. Let's, yeah, let's like trim it back like an hour and a half and see what we got there. And Sidney re- went and rewrote it and had it 15 pages longer. <laughs> like you do. Um, and apparently everyone who worked on this film like was losing their mind where someone would turn a draft in and then escape town just so they couldn't take any calls. Uh, it was becoming nuts. And like Victor Fleming, who took over directing of the film, he uh, uh, things went crazy for him as well. And uh, he eventually got like terrible anxiety. And uh, left the film for like a week or two and went on vacation. <laughs> and a, a filmmaker by the name of Sam Wood took over and he was directing. And then Victor Fleming her- heard how good of a job he was doing. It's like, no, this can't be. <laughs> and he came back and powered through it. So like, there's one, two, three, there's five directors in the film, four screenwriters, three cinematographers, norm- into t- and two editors. Uh, normally today, if you would hear about this happening, you- you're like, oh, this film is doomed. There's no way right. this film's going to work. And especially because the script is being rewritten every single day. No one knew what they were what they were doing. Uh, and it's now considered one of the greatest films of all time. Like, how... He must... Uh, David Oselznick must have sold his soul to the devil <laughs> to get this film done. Well, and it's... You, you could certainly make a case for, like, nowadays, chunking that into two films. It, it was four hours long with a very natural break in the begin in, in the middle yeah um where where each one with probably a little bit of tweaking could easily you know everybody everybody loves their sequels nowadays yeah you like you could have made a whole series of gone with the wind films yeah no i don't think anyone would want to see that <laughs> not in today's world anyways one of the things that like most of of the character stuff I, I got a lot out of but made sense one big question mark that still hangs in my head why did Rhett sign up for the army and and he speculates on this too He's, he tells you right up front everything he does is for self interest He's yeah. everything he does is to for, for Rhett Butler but then he's decides to join up in the army and he says i don't know maybe i'm feeling guilty maybe i'm he throws out a couple of options but it's never really answered no and it's it's really strange too because like at first i thought it was just a uh, an excuse to to leave the situation but um, yeah like all of a sudden he just got this insatiable need to do his civic duty and the only thing i can think of is like 
is to see the burning of Atlanta and see all these people suffering for, you know, and joining up with the team that he knows is going to lose to maybe help them out. Yeah, he, he says maybe I just have a thing for lost causes once they're truly lost. Um, and, and maybe therein lies the answer because um, we've already established that Scarlet perhaps wants things simply because she can't have them. Yeah. And so maybe this is his way of saying, guess what, now you can't have... If, if he suspects this, then and he goes off to where now you can't have me, so that she'll want him. Maybe yeah. in his mind, this is the only way that that he thinks he can get her. Yeah, and... Um... And maybe I'm putting uh, too, giving too much credit to uh, to his character because, like, now that I'm even when I'm about to say it, it doesn't even sound like it's logical for what he would do. <laughs> he uh, he left her at a time when she was at her lowest. When especially because I, I yeah. she's probably only like, she put probably it was only probably like 18 years old or so. She was 16 or 17. She was 16 or 17 at the beginning, so maybe I don't know how much time had passed, but she was still really young. And had not yeah. lived any sort of life outside of, you know, perfection. Um, and he's pretty, you know, and he doesn't even, he, he knows it's it, it's stupid to go back to Terra. Uh, but she wants to do it. And I feel like in his own way, he's like, well, if you want to go back, then you've got to deal with what you're going to find. And I'm not going to be there to pick you up afterwards. If you want to go back there, you've got to deal with this on your own. So I feel like it gave him an out as well to leave. And because in, in that montage, and it's not even a montage, I guess that's the wrong word, but in that sequence of her getting back to Terra, she grew up a lot. Yeah. Well, and I I think one of the the fl- flaws in the thinking of, of Rhett leaving because he wouldn't support her in that way is there's a reoccurring theme of when these people fall in love with somebody else, I would do anything for you. That line is said, I think four or five times I, I taught it, but I would do anything. I love you so much. I would do anything for you. And Rhett until the very last scene would do anything for her. Yeah. And, and tells, is it Millie that at one point in, in the third act or fifth, depending on the 27th act in this. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Towards the end. Um, you know, if if I knew there was a chance, if I thought that there was any chance that someday she would stop loving Ashley, then um, then I would wait till the ends of the earth. I because I would do anything for her, and I think when she was going back to Terra, he would do anything for her then. Yeah, probably. Um, it's interesting though. Like one thing I uh, I I paid attention to, and I and I, I appreciate it too, because like. Um, one, earlier, one of the earlier scenes when Rhett and uh, Scarlett were dancing, you know, he says, "I just want you to say uh, to say to me what you said to Ashley that day, and you know that you love me." And she's like, "You're never gonna hear that." And all, and he does. Yeah, and it's a it, day too late. Yeah, and I I love that. I'm glad that they uh, <coughs> held it off until that very last scene. Yeah. Because then but he doesn't it, give like, a shit. Like nobody gets like everybody is miserable by the end of this movie and and i say by the end everybody is miserable throughout the entire movie yeah it's just a series of i want this 
but it's torn away from me. I want this, but I'll never have it. That that every character. <laughs> and like seriously, Rhett's lucky he got out when he did, or else the horses would have come and killed him like they did her two other husbands. <laughs> right. Maybe that's gonna be the sequel. <laughs> they they made a sequel. Revenge of the Stallions. They did. It's called Scarlet. I... It's called Scarlet. Oh, it, I'll have to I'll have to watch that and see it, what the horses do. <laughs> it wasn't like it's based on a book, which wasn't written by Margaret Mitchell, and it made okay. it into a movie. I don't know. My mom has seen it, but I don't know what she thought about it. But no, it's yeah. good. Uh, I think we should make a threequel and have it be about horses. There you go. <laughs> Scar- it should be uh, Scarlet Stallion, and there's one horse that has like red blood across its face because it's coming after scarlet (laughs) it's got her father's blood on him always looking at her through a window (laughs) i do have to i do have to say it's i understand his motivation behind it but i was really amused that like after not amused that the child died that that was sad because it it really it really caught me off guard but i was amused by the line afterwards that he went out and shot that horse in the head it's like the horse didn't do anything (laughs) didn't it michael didn't it (laughs) Your, your daughter's the one who wasn't listing <laughs> right, and trying to jump while riding side saddle. Well, that horse wasn't a vengeful jerk. <laughs> Something that I really enjoyed about the movie, too, was their use of color. Uh, yes. And, and um, the, they, they used green, uh, and a lot with Scarlet's out, outfits, too, but green to represent uh her envy and her jealousy they use red to uh represent her passion and borderline at least emotional adultery um yeah there's another scene where everybody is wearing black um except for Rhett, who comes in in a fancy white linen suit <laughs> white hat everybody black except Rhett coming in there um of course like, so uh, that, that's how it works uh, or when uh, Scarlet is so overwhelmed by being the nurse in the Civil War hospital, she like just—it's the only time that she is drab. It's all like light browns, head to toe, as she as she leaves the hospital. Um, but I I really enjoyed what they did there. No, I did too, uh, and I, and a lot of that comes down to uh, the way it was shot. Are you very familiar with Three Strip Technicolor? Uh, no. I, I found the Technicolor beautiful, but the, in terms of the... Well, how, how three-strip Technicolor process. works, because this is like the pinnacle of Technicolor. Um, uh, and that's the reason the colors pop so much, is because it, it really focuses on primary color. So how three-strip Technicolor works, uh, I don't know, maybe they have a video online somewhere where like we could pop in and like show people how it works. But how, <laughs> how, it, how it, um, it works is the cameras were huge and bulky. And because it was it was rolling three strips of black and white film through the camera at all times and shooting the same image, and each one would run past a colored prism that would tint the film that color. And it this strip would pick up would be all would be green. This one would be red, and I think the other one was yellow. I think those were the. I think those, yeah, green, red, and yellow. I think those are the three colors. I could okay. be wrong. And essentially, with those three colors, you could pick up everything. So they run through the right. three f- films. They put it through a dye process, mix it together. I don't quite know how all that part is done. And then it comes <laughs> out with these gloriously uh, beautiful images where those three colors specifically really pop. And the thing about Technicolor 
is um, it was such a finicky process where uh, Technicolor actually through con- if you wanted to use the Technicolor process that you had to agree to their terms and their terms were they would have a a uh, supervisors on set one person um, whose job was to uh, work with the set designers and could veto any colors or color schemes mm. they feel we're not gonna we're not gonna work with the technical process and then they also had someone who worked with the with the cinematographer uh, especially if they've never worked on color features before and if they weren't happy with their work could fire them wow and uh, and one thing and they also have to use uh, three times as much light to make these to, films work sure and what's interesting though about watching it is I was amazed, and I told Amanda this. It's like their use of darkness and shadow is yep. so well. It's like it. I I described the tour, and she hasn't seen as many black and white movies, but you might get this. It's shot like a black and white movie in color. Right, like Citizen Kane would be a lot of use of cookies, um, silhouette. Um, like you said, dark scene with this just like half of their face illuminated enough to see it like um, the scene that the scene where melanie was giving birth and like it's all through silhouette with the back with the light coming yep. through like the shutters um or that scene that very uh questionable pot potentially rape scene where Rhett yep. picks up scrout and he walks off into darkness right just very uh theater-esque of of the you know the darkness representing the unknown and the the frightful yeah like and i uh, i just that was the biggest thing i took away from this movie was like uh the the this movie is technically brilliant and it's even better so like realizing that this movie created the idea that we'll fix it in post uh because there's so many times where they're making a scene and they didn't have enough they didn't have enough of like uh enough money to shoot a set or something so like that that scene where like where Rhett builds scarlet a new house and they're walking into it the whole house is a painting the only shot they could get was the actors walking into the studio in costume and then they just painted everything around it like they used (laughs) so much matte painting on this film to extend things none of the sets had ceilings Okay. None of the sets had ceilings. They're all painted in to save on money. And, uh, awesome. Uh, or, like, <laughs> they would repurpose scenes. The burning of Atlanta, they just burned old sets. <laughs> they burned the they burned the big gate from the original King Kong. <laughs> Something about that reminded me of the, the scene in The Simpsons when they're filming uh, the, the Radioactive Man movie and they're painting <laughs> the horses. Why don't you just use towels? Can't use towels. Don't look like cows. You gotta paint the horses. What do you do if you want something that looks like a horse? Well, usually, we just type a bunch of cats together. One of the things I wanted to talk about, um, well, continuing on with uh, uh, the idea of the movie being technically brilliant, is uh, you know, like I just love the use of the rear screen projection. Like that was a very clever way to do a lot of what they're trying to get done. Um, the fact that like the the production designer William Cameron Menzies, much of this film's success comes to him because he's the one who did all those, all those matte paintings and figured out yeah. the way. Uh, and he storyboarded the entire film from beginning to end in advance, and that, this was one of the first times that was done. So he's one of the unsung heroes of this, of this film. Um, I guess the couple other things I uh, I wanted to discuss were. Um, 
um, a quote I read uh, by Roger Ebert, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, and then, like, I, I love, um, I want to talk about that famous line. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Because it was one of those lines I grew up knowing, but I never knew the context of. Right. So, like, Amanda was saying that's like, I just kind of assumed that was, uh, that was something he said right before they made love, because I just assumed this was some, like, big sweeping romance. And then we watched, it was like, wow, he just used this as a way to, to say F you, Scarlet, essentially. Right. <laughs> and they uh, went through so much crap to get that that line used, because you weren't allowed to say damn in a movie back then. <laughs> So, like, they had to fight couldn't, the ratings Couldn't board. show bathrooms, couldn't show two people in the same bed together, couldn't say damn. No fun. No. How did anything good get made until we have our, our new liberal ideas of... <laughs> no clue. But, yeah, you know, clear, clearly the most famous line, of, though though there are several, um, that one's got to be the most iconic. And, and it's... It, it certainly represents um, uh, Rhett's change because he's, again, with that I, I would do anything for you, Starlet, attitude of, of I want to own you, I want to, to possess you. Um, and and finally he gives up and says, you know what, I'm out. Yeah. Even, even before Here's... when he left and, and he was giving her divorce papers, it wasn't, I'm leaving you. It's that I'm recognizing that I can't have you in the way that I want you. Where at the end, it's like, I don't care that you love me. I'm yeah. done. I'm washing my hands of all of this. Again, he was an ass. I'm, I'm, I don't want to paint him as like, oh, he finally got out of this abusive. No, no, no. he just... He just went back to being 100% selfish rather than 95% selfish. He, <laughs> he went back to the booze and the hookers. Right. Though uh, there was that great scene with, uh, uh, God, what was the, the harlot's name, the like woman that ran the Betsy? burlesque house? Beverly? Some, it, it's a B word. Bipsy, Bibby, Simpson, Swampson, Samsonite? Yeah, let's go with that. I knew it would start with a B, though. Um where he's, they set up this uh, foil of of her and Scarlet. Of you two are really similar. Rhett tells her you two are really similar, except you have heart. Hmm. Yeah. And and there's a regularly, they're they're talking about people's honor and whether or not honor is important. And um, they show all of the gentlemen in the beginning acting very gentlemanly and, and southernly. And then they ask Rhett what he thinks of the war, and he acts in a very non-gentlemanly manner and, and tells, he tells it like it is. Um, and then uh, kind of say, says, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not a gentleman. I'm going to excuse myself. Um, but so there, there's that theme of, of do you or do you not have honor and do you or do you not have heart? And it seems that both Scarlet and Rhett have neither. Yeah. Where everybody else in the film at least has one of those two things. And they're played against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a whole... I, oh, what are you saying? There's one more thing uh, at the end I, that I... One of my little quirks that I caught um, when Millie is dying. And uh, her son, Bo, I believe. Yeah. Um, wants white is upset and it's morning and he doesn't want and and ashley's taking him to bed and he says i don't want to go to bed 
He's upset about his mom being sick, and he says, I don't want to go to bed. It's morning. And the dad said, it isn't really morning yet. And clearly the, the double entendre of mm-hmm. morning, that, that they're about to be morning, but it's not here yet. She is on her deathbed. Yeah, I thought that was... Uh, she hasn't yet died. That was a really clever use of wordplay. And uh, I think, like, the the main screenwriter for this film, he um, he was a theater right? He, he wrote for a lot for theater and did a lot of Shakespeare, okay. like did a lot of Shakespeare adaptations. Yeah, and everything. very and so, and you could, Shakespearean wordplay. And you, you could you could kind of see that. Um, I was going to say, I don't have a whole lot more other than a quote that I found that I feel like kind of sums up, uh, I feel like sums up Gone with the Wind pretty nicely. Unless cool. you've got something else. No, uh, no, I don't think so. I, well, I, I have lots. I have pages and pages <laughs> of notes, but I think we, we covered the spirit of yeah. what is in all of it. Um. Once again, I need to get real. I get. I need to get a lot better at uh, remember uh, finding the uh, name of who you're quoting. Uh, give me one second, and I will find <laughs> out who this person was. Oh, it, it's actually CNN. All right. So here's a to- uh, quote by Todd Leopold about Gone with the Wind that I felt like this, uh, summed it up very nicely. If you depend on movies for a clean, uncluttered, and accurate view of history, you'll be disappointed every time. Leave the, histor- leave the history to the historians. Movies are storytelling, and few stories are, are told as well as Gone with the Wind. As Roger Ebert noted in 1998, it's still a towering landmark of film, quite simply because it tells a good story and tells it wonderfully well. And I feel yep. like um, that's, that's Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Uh, in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up for the day, though, uh, I've got some obligations that I need to get out the way. Where uh, we got to talk about my mom's other favorite film, <laughs> Psycho Cop Returns. <laughs> uh, no, it's not really her other favorite film. I just, I just love that we're we're, we're pairing uh, Gone with the Wind and Vinegar Syndrome's release of Psycho Cop Returns. A lot of similarities. Yes. A lot of synergy here. <laughs> However, I think you. I think if if I if I can convince you to buy any title, Nick, from Vinegar Syndrome, or maybe I'll I'll, I'll let you. I'll lend you my copy and just mail it over. It'll be nice. this one. Uh, okay. Psycho Cop Returns is a is a is a comedy horror film directed by Riff Coogan, the nom de plume of filmmaker Adam Rifkin, best known for Detroit Rock City. Uh, oh. There's not much story, but what I can tell you is it's the slasher version of Die Hard. Nice. Okay. A group of deci- a group of guys decide to throw a bachelor party in the high rise they work in after uh, work in after hours, like you do, and a satanic <laughs> police officer shows up to punish them. Larry and Brian thought they'd planned the perfect bachelor party. They took care of the booze. They took care of the boss. Yes. They took care of the girls. Women. Women, 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 They took care of the entertainment. We're here to party. They even took care of the night watchman. The only thing they didn't take care of was him. You boys wouldn't be planning anything illegal. Now they've got an uninvited guest. They're just having some fun. Fun? Fun? Until someone loses an eye. He's a cop. He shoots at people for a living. Chances are he's a little bit strange. <laughs> Psycho Cop 2. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, 
so you can see all the similarities already have gone with the wind. Uh, right. Yeah. There's some there's some great things about it. One uh, uh, one of the animators for The Simpsons he wrote it. <laughs> so it's got a great sense of humor. It's a crazy <laughs> film, and I feel like it'd be great for an audience. Uh, Bob Vance from The Office. Hi, guys. Uh, does everyone know my boyfriend, Bob Vance? Kevin Malone. Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. Stanley Hudson. Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. Ryan Howard. Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. What line of work you in, Bob? The one, the, the one woman. The husband. Yeah, he's yep. a psycho cop. <laughs> Uh, and he delivers all of his lines like Plastic Santa from the Santa Claus 2. Have your attention. Stop the work, please. Everybody stop the work. Merry Christmas. That's nice. I have a little announcement to make. From this moment forward, we're not going to make any more toys. The children of the world don't deserve these presents. They're running rampant with naughtiness. So for this Christmas, we're going to give those greedy, selfish little kids exactly what they deserve. A beautiful, high-quality, yet low-sulfur variety of coal! <laughs> so if you've seen the Santa Claus 2 of Tim Allen when, like, he creates plastic Santa... Uh, <laughs> what an interesting stew of references you've just created. <laughs> well, I realize we've had no references to this entire episode because it's been a very dry, studious episode, so I thought yeah. I should throw them all in right now. <laughs> the film was made in a weekend. It was trying its hardest to make the next Freddy Krueger. <laughs> uh, I this movie I loved this movie. It's not particularly well made. It's, it's, it's being a little harsh. It's made as well as it could be in a week for its budget. Yeah, I was just gonna say for a week. Like, I'm assuming um, feature lane. It's not like, a whole lot of story to it, and it's a lot of running around the high rise and like as uh, <laughs> uh, the psycho cop comes and kills them all. And he like if you look up the description for the original psycho cop, which you don't need to see to enjoy this film. It says, uh, a satanic police officer makes comments as he kills teenagers because everything he says, he's got a terrible pun with. Um, like, um, let's, let, me, let me see if I can pull up the uh, the quotes for Psycho Cop 2 because um, everything he says is a, uh, is a pun. Like, I hate to kick a man when he's dead. They just don't put up much of a fight. Uh, or there's a great one. Um, he he throws a woman off of the high rise and she lands into a trash can. And his line is, "If you act like trash, you get treated like trash." <laughs> and uh, of course, uh... of course, when he kills someone, <laughs> and when he kills these two people having sex, he of course has the great confusing line, "I'm beginning <laughs> to sus- I'm ge- I'm beginning to suspect foreplay." <laughs> Everything about this movie. Yeah, it just amused the hell out of me and Amanda. Uh, and there's a pretty good making of documentary on the disc as well, where they talk to the filmmakers and the actors and everything, and just talk about like how fun it was to make this film. But then also just sure. about like the 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 indie spirit that went into it, because uh, Adam Rifkin he he was trying to make like real films at the time too, but he thought, how often as a filmmaker do you get to practice your craft? You don't. Sure. So he said, if I make low budget, you know horror films for direct to D, for direct to VHS that have nudity and blood and gives me an excuse to direct and it doesn't hurt me because I'm using a fake name right so it just talks about like everything it went into making this movie in a week and it just seemed like it was kind of nightmarish not nearly as much as uh, uh, Gone with the Wind 
but like <laughs> he had fun because it didn't matter whether or not the film right. turned out yeah. well. Pressure was off. Um uh, and here is the greatest line in cinema history. This 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 is gonna take precedence over, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Okay, and it's I'm bracing myself. And it's delivered by Psycho Cop Joe Vickers. You have the right to remain dead. Anything you say can and will be considered very strange because you're dead. You have the right to an attorney, but it won't do you any good because you're dead. Do you understand these rights that have been read to you? Are you even listening? It would be a lot easier if you would be a little more cooperative. <laughs> the best part about that... And might drop. <laughs> anything you say can and will be considered very strange because you're dead. <laughs> the uh, the actor that plays him, um, he says in uh, the, the making of... It's like, I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, but I'll never forget that line. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, You want me to say what now? <laughs> So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's Psycho Cop Returns. It's a lot of fun. It's like it's it, honestly the best way I can describe it is it's the slasher film version of Die Hard. Yeah, um, that's, I mean, that's all winning right there. <laughs> it, it is uh, some of the most fun I have had recently, and uh, considering I just watched a couple really long movies, I just watched Gone with the Wind, <laughs> and then right after that I decided to watch Rear Window, which was amazing. Yeah, um, that's a good one. And uh, so I was like, you know what? I, I, I'm feeling like I need some Psycho Cop returns in my life. It's a it's a palate cleanser. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so right now, that is, out of Vinegar Syndrome's entire line, that is the one that gets my uh, my <laughs> my seal of approval, <laughs> and would make a great uh, accompaniment to Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Again, a lot of synergy. If anything, watch the first half of first half of Gone with the Wind. When the animation comes up, watch Psycho Cop Returns, and then watch Shake the, it out. Yeah, watch the second half of Gone with the Wind. Make it a day of it. You're gonna have to. Uh, Best double feature ever. Yes. But anyways, that's that's what all I've got. Did you have any suggestions for me? Or are we just gonna wrap it up a little? I don't want to say early because oh, it's kind of long episode. I I did not prepare. I put so much energy into uh, Gone with the Wind notes that <laughs> that I was overwhelmed to the point of not doing any recommendations. Uh, same. And to to be fair, our shameless we ha- right now have enough content to record this show for like twenty seven years. Yeah. At our current rate of watching. Um, so I think we're okay, but I, I liked it as a feature. No, so. I do too. Yeah. Um, I don't think I got any more. Else. I don't. I I feel like I'm gonna need to step away from Gone with the Wind for a while after this. Like after watching a full hour movie and then two and a half hours of making of and reading countless essays, it's gonna be a while before I revisit this film again. I I've kind of made for- the rule that unless I can see it on the big screen, I'm probably not gonna watch it for a very long time. Frankly. Michael, I don't give a damn. I was wondering when that was going to come in. I was, yeah, I was waiting for the right moment. Uh, but real quick before we finish for the day, since this is my mother's favorite movie, I um, I sat down with her the other day. I brought a recorder to her house, and I I, I conducted a little interview with my mother, and to find oh. out why Gone with the Wind is her favorite movie. <clears throat> and we had a we had a lot of fun, and it was. Once she got warmed up, uh, it was a really good conversation. So, cool. Here's that. Do you want to say something just so I can see if you're. 
going through. I love Gone with the Wind. <laughs> All right. That worked, and it's plenty loud enough. All right. Uh, I am sitting here with my mom, Mary, on this, this special Mother's Day episode of the Shameless Picture Show. And uh, since uh, Gone with the Wind is her favorite movie, or at least that's what she always told me growing up, I thought I'd talk to her for a couple minutes and get an idea of why. So, uh, you said Gone with the Wind, you know, like throughout my childhood was one of, if not your favorite movie of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, can you elaborate on why a little bit? The best of your ability. I think it's just the fact that it's an epic movie uh it's history not so much even the love story but just the fact that it shows the the change over a span of many years and movies like that intrigue me and to me gone with the wind was just one of my favorites and uh i believe it spent quite a bit of time because i believe when the book or the book and movie began charlotte was only like uh, not charlotte scarlet was only like 16 years old and i think by the end of it she's 38 yeah getting up there in age um uh did you have a color tv yes so you got to see it in its you know full color mm-hmm. because uh, Gone with the Wind is known for its its vibrant use of color because it was used of the three the three strip Technicolor process. Do you know anything about that? Yes. When was the first time you saw it, if you can remember? I would think probably middle school. Probably on TV. Most likely, yes. How did it work? Since the movie's a four-hour movie with an intermission, intro, and outro music, like, how did... It it must have been an event, like... Oh, yeah. I mean, movies like that, they would have it, like, two, three nights, you know, it would be, you know, like a miniseries. Um, Yeah, so they couldn't show it all all one night. And, you know, there weren't DVRs uh, back then. There weren't, you know, anything to record. So if you wanted to watch a movie... You had to be in front of the TV to watch it. There was no way to pause TV back then. So, so like they'd show it in like in like half hour, hour increments. Probably, I would say probably like two hours. But then again, there'd probably be commercials, you know, on regular local channels. So they probably put it on probably two to three nights, I would assume. Well, Nick, um, I can honestly say that this episode is now gone with the wind. Oh, <laughs> I was. I'm gonna need so many drum like rim shot sound effects in this episode, which I expected with it being gone with the wind. A lot of bad puns, and, <laughs> and especially that we can we uh we paired it with Psycho Cop too. Uh, yeah, that's the, I mean, what else would you pair it with? That's the through line right there. Is bad puns. <laughs> I think that's all you need. Yep. All right. I concur. All right, Nick. I think this is uh, one of our longer episodes. I, my 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 runtime is an hour nineteen before we cut stuff out. So, though so we were at what one twenty two for uh, for uh, in the mouth of madness. I think. Yeah, but like once we put one of them was real. Once we put my mom in, it'll all. Well, yeah. This is definitely the denser of the episodes, and this will be one yeah. that probably has a uh, very few sound bites other than maybe from the actual movie. This was like all content. There's no fluff in this episode. No, and I I rely on fluff to keep these episodes going. Right. 
I mean, we're not entertaining. It's it's all of our cutaways that, no, <laughs> that pe- do the entertaining people, for us. People listen to our episodes for Freddy's Dead things that, co- references. <laughs> for things they could just watch on YouTube. Yeah, but instead they're like, oh, I want to hear what Michael and Nick are going to say about Freddy's Dead. Or about Butch <laughs> Patrick. Right. Or about Killer Horses. <laughs> I want to write an entire essay now about how... Gone with the Wind is just about a murderous band of revenge horses. <laughs> I want to make a I, I want to make a film a short film based on that. I want to make like, yeah. everything like it's uh, like um, a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but instead of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, what the horses were doing during all these scenes? <laughs> totally. I almost made because like, this is audio and you can't see it. Nick almost choked on his coffee. <laughs> Well, they can watch it on the YouTubes. On the YouTubes. <laughs> yep. Oh, you sound so <laughs> YouTubes. I can't even think of like you sound like oh. George Carlin doing a skit. Yeah, well, it's uh, you know the the sh- deep Chicago accent. Uh, get the uh, have two tree brats in an old style kind of uh, <laughs> well, super I- fans doubles. Now I want a brat. Damn you. <laughs> They're so delicious. I know. Okay. All right. But listen, real quick, I think the last thing yep. I need to ask you before this show is over. Okay. How are the brats in Maryland? Uh, well, I actually was always a big fan of Johnsonville, which I'm pretty sure is a Wisconsin brand, and we have those out here. Though the best ones are always going to come from like the the kind of places where like you know somebody sticks an open flag out on their front porch and then you pull down their driveway into their shed and like half of a pig is hanging upside down in a dusty you know unsanitary place but the flavors are off the hook (laughs) no it tastes like it looks tastes like swine and sawdust yeah but we don't have those out here we when when you see that sign and you pull into somebody's shady driveway it's crabs and oysters that's good to know yeah all right I, so come on come on down to the eastern shore oh we're hoping to at some point <laughs> yes uh not gonna be right away but you know we'll plan on it but uh yeah. i feel like um i feel like that's all we got i think so all right we'll see you next time until then let us know what what you're watching let us know what's on your shame lists uh I'm I'm eager to see how it compares against ours. Yeah, and as always, like like and rate us uh, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, uh, SoundCloud. Just share us. Do anything. Just let us know that you are you are listening. Like we <laughs> we appreciate the private messages saying how much you like our show, but post something on the page. <laughs> let let other don't be ashamed. Don't let us be on your shame list. Ooh. I feel like that's how that's how we're gonna end this. Nice. All right. All right. Bye bye. Peace out.